Welcome back to the Yellow Box Podcast. This week, we are joined by Community Lead Pastor Dave Ferguson as we wrap up our series, Decision 2016. For more information, please visit us at www.communitychristian.org. And remember, you can always join us on Sundays at the Yellow Box at 9.30 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 5 p.m. We hope to see you there. Hello, community. I'm coming to you from the epicenter of American politics, Washington, D.C., and I love this town. Uh, You have the monuments that are dedicated to some of our most heroic presidents. You also have events that happened right here that literally changed the trajectory of American history. And of course, the rules and laws that are made in the highest of courts all happen right here. And then this fall, this fall we're going to elect a brand new president, a brand new president who will take up residence just a couple blocks away in the White House. But before all that, in just a couple of weeks, our two major political parties will be holding their national conventions. Both parties are working very hard to unify after one of the craziest and most divisive primary seasons in recent memory. We might think this current hostile political environment is brand new, but it's not new at all. In fact, before the era of primary elections, national conventions weren't just threatened with a contested convention, often they were contested. If you, back, if you go back and read your U.S. history, In 1924, the Democratic National Convention, it took 103 ballots before the party reached a consensus on a candidate. (laughs) 103 rounds of voting. Can you even imagine how CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News, I mean, they'd have a field day with that. In a divisive political environment, actually, it's not a new problem at all. You could argue that the political climate was even more divided back in Jesus' day. See, back then, they didn't have just two, but they had at least four different kind of opposing parties. Now remember, to set the context, Jesus lived in the land of Israel during the time of the Roman Empire. The Jewish people, which Jesus was a part of, they had suffered tremendously at the hands of their Roman oppressors and conquerors. And so they had a lot of kind of different views on how they should navigate their political situation. What were these groups? Well, the first group you had was known as the Herodians. They kind of accepted the situation with Rome, in Rome, for what it was and tried to make the best of it. You could say their slogan was, if you can't beat them, let's just join them. Well, then on the opposite end of the political spectrum was the Zealots, and they had great zeal. And what they wanted was holy war against the Romans. They were ready for violence. Now, their political slogan was more like, give them hell. Well, then you have the Essians. And they just kind of wanted to get away from all the tension, all the political conflict. They would retreat to the wilderness where they could kind of isolate themselves from the world around them. And their slogan, let's get away from them. Then the last of the four groups was the Pharisees. That was the majority party, the largest party. The Pharisees thought, if we could just be good enough, if we could just obey all God's laws, then God will act. He'll intervene. He'll overthrow this Roman oppressor. Their slogan, it might have been something like, uh, God's going to get them. Well, even in Jesus' day, there were all these opposing political views. Now, make no mistake about it. All four of these groups, they did not like each other. And that's why it was so unusual to see two of them actually join together in an alliance to challenge Jesus. We see this in Matthew chapter 22. We find these two groups both coming together to challenge Jesus. We'll start reading in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now remember, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they despised each other. This was the God's going to get them group 
joining forces with the, if you can't beat them, join them group in order to both go after Jesus. And they try to trap Jesus with a political question. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity, that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. They're setting him up here. So tell us, what's your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? What they're asking here, it's a politically charged question. And the tax that they're talking about is what was known as a head tax. It wasn't a large amount. It was about the equivalent of a day's wage for the lowest class of worker. But it was an annual tax that you had to pay for the privilege of being a subject of Caesar. Basically, if you had a head, you owed the tax. Now, here's why this was a tricky question. If Jesus responds and says, no, don't pay the tax, then the movement that Jesus is leading would be considered a revolt against Rome. Now, if that story starts to circulate, the Herodians, the if you can't beat them, join them group, they'll have Jesus exactly where they want him. They're allies of Rome, and they'll mobilize Roman authorities to try to take Jesus out. On the other hand, if Jesus says, yeah, pay the tax, then the Pharisees, remember the God will get them group, they'll accuse him of being a fraud. They'll claim, hey, your loyalty is to Caesar and not to God. And then he'll lose the support of the majority party. So either way, the goal of both the Pharisees and the Herodians is to take Jesus down and they set the trap. So how does Jesus respond? Well, we pick it up in verse 18. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. And so they left and went away. All right. Jesus gives an answer that is so brilliant, so unexpected, that he leaves his adversaries completely, as it says, amazed. Both political parties, they're stunned. They have no reply. He's dropped the mic and walked out of the room. All right, what was so amazing about Jesus' reply? Well, there are three ways that Jesus handles politics that really are amazing and so very different than anything we see today. Now, if you'd like, you can fill in the blanks along with me on the ballot you got when you came in. It'll help you kind of keep track of the things that I'm saying and maybe some insights you can take away. Here's the first thing. You can fill this in. Jesus refuses political simplicity. Very important. First of all, Jesus refuses political simplicity. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they asked Jesus for a very simple yes-no answer. Should we pay taxes or not? And this was a hot political topic at the time. But what Jesus does, he doesn't give them a simple answer. He doesn't align himself with one side or the other. Because in effect, what they're asking him is, which party are you in? This party or that party? But he refuses to be labeled by their politics, which I think has an interesting practical application for us. We must not do to Jesus what he wouldn't do to himself. Let me say that again. We must not do to Jesus what he wouldn't do to himself. I remember hearing Pastor Tim Keller from from New York explain this. He said, you must not say, this is Jesus' party, or this is Jesus' platform. He wouldn't do that. When you do that, you're mixing up God and Caesar. It's one of the things he says not to do. If we find ourselves believing that Jesus is for one party, or one platform, or one candidate, I think we need to pause and consider, are we giving Jesus a label that he refused to actually give himself? 
Do you want to know one of the best ways to make sure you're refusing political simplicity? You decide to be a learner and not merely a critic. I'm telling you, during this political season, when you don't understand how someone could believe such a thing or support such a thing or be for such a thing, decide to become a learner and try to understand his or her point of view. For example, if you watch Fox News, turn over to MSNBC. Or if you only watch Rachel Maddow, why don't you check out what Bill O'Reilly has to say? And, and, or maybe you only watch CNN. If that's the case, flip over to the BBC and hear an international perspective. I think you get the idea. And talk to people. Talk to people who think differently than you, who look differently than you, who live in a different community than you. Ask questions to those people who hold different views on things like health care or immigration or economics. And here's the thing. When you talk, ask questions and listen. Don't just sit there waiting so you can give your response. Actually be a learner. If you decide to become a learner and not a critic, you'll discover that some issues are far more complex than they might seem. And some people are much more honorable than maybe you originally thought. And if you don't think you need to learn anything, let me just caution you. You know what that's called? Arrogance. Taking the posture of a learner, it doesn't mean you're going to change your mind but it does give you a better chance at being like Jesus, who is refusing political simplicity. All right, Jesus refuses political simplicity, but second of all, he also refuses political complacency. Got that? He refuses political complacency. Now think about what Jesus does in this exchange. He tells them to bring a coin, this denarius. And a denarius was a silver coin that had the image and the name of Caesar on it. And so they bring it to Jesus, and he asks them, whose image is on this? And they answer, Caesar. So, Jesus says, give to Caesar the things that bear his image. In effect, he's saying, this coin belongs to Caesar because it bears his image. So you just give it to him. And there are a number of things going on here in Jesus' answer. But one of them is that Jesus refuses political complacency. He doesn't respond to the question with a kind of complacent response of no comment. He doesn't try to escape like the Essians retreating to the wilderness to stay out of the political arena. And I think this is very, very important, especially for us today. Because sometimes in the middle of this very crazy, divisive political climate, and I feel this sometimes, we are tempted to completely withdraw from anything having to do with politics. I mean, some of us, we do. We just want to totally disengage. We ignore all the issues. And we kind of, I think, exonerate ourselves by saying, hey, you know what, I'm not participating in this election. But actually, Jesus refuses that kind of political complacency. And that's part of what's going on when he responds to their question. I mean, he could have just rolled his eyes and then kind of shook his head and said, I'm not with you Pharisees, and I'm also not siding with you Herodians. You're all idiots, and I'm sitting this one out. But he doesn't do that. What Jesus does, he weighs in with real wisdom, and he says to both sides, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's? As his followers, I'm telling you, we can't sit this political season out. Why? Because Jesus doesn't. And Jesus refuses political complacency. So first, he refuses political simplicity. He also refuses political complacency. And that brings us to the third. And this is so amazing, the ways that Jesus handles politics. He also refuses political primacy. Go ahead and write that on your handout. Political primacy. All right, what do I mean by that? Well, Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But he goes on to say, but give to God what is God's. 
Give to Caesar the things that bear his image, but give to God the things that bear God's image, which is, let's think about this, what bears God's image? You. You do. I do. We do. We bear. We are made in God's image. And this is so important. We have to understand that before you are a Democrat or a Republican or Libertarian or Green Party or whatever else you claim to be, you are a follower of Jesus. Your first allegiance is to Him. You belong to God. And so Jesus says, no, here's what you do. You give to God what is God's. Give yourself to Him. Practically speaking. Okay, what does that mean, give yourself to God? Well, if we continue to follow in Matthew chapter 22, answer, He answers the questions Himself. He actually says this. He says, here's how you do it. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying it to them then and he's saying it to us today. As followers of mine, you are not first and foremost a supporter of Donald Trump. You are a Christ follower first and foremost. You are not first and foremost a supporter of Hillary Clinton. You are first and foremost a Christ follower. You are not first and foremost a supporter of the Green Party or Libertarian Party or any other political party. You are first and foremost what? Christ followers. And Jesus says, first and foremost, as followers of mine, you choose to love. My followers will always choose love. Now, knowing that Jesus would refuse, what, first of all, political simplicity, secondly, political complacency, and then thirdly, this political primacy, how would Jesus choose a president? If Jesus were an American, and come November 8th, he walked into that voting booth, here's what he would do. Jesus would choose with love. He would make a choice that was a clear reflection of his love for God, but also his love for his neighbors. So let me give you two thoughts. Two thoughts as you prepare to walk into that voting booth this coming November. First of all, love God's kingdom even more than your country. Let me say that again. You love God's kingdom even more than your country. And this is not an anti-patriotic statement. Personally, I think every American has every right and should be patriotic. I get to travel the world quite a bit, and, and I love coming home to this country. I think it's a great country. This is not anti-patriotic. What it is, it's a loyalty statement. In Matthew 6, Jesus says this, Seek first, okay? There's your loyalty. Seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. The Apostle Paul gets this, and he, and he picks up on it in Philippians 3.20. And he says, We are citizens of heaven, and we eagerly are waiting for our Savior to come from there. So when you go into that voting booth, you don't go in first and foremost as an American. You go in first and foremost as a follower of Jesus seeking His kingdom, wanting His kingdom to come to earth. You go into that booth and you love God. But here's the second thing. You love others more than yourself. Again, you love others more than yourselves. Here's what I mean. So much of politics for the last 50 years has been really aimed at voters as consumers. I mean, every politician makes promises, like, if you vote for me, here's what you're gonna get, or here's what I'm gonna bring your constituency, or, or put me in office and, and here's how it's gonna benefit you. That's not the first concern of a Christ follower. The first concern of a Christ follower is others, your brothers, your sisters. Let me add, both in this country and abroad. And we need to think strategically about this, but we always lead with our love for others more than ourselves. 
I mean, just think, think, think about this. Think about how easy it is for us to gather on Sunday. We read from Matthew 22. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and your neighbors yourself. And we all nod in agreement and say, absolutely. But when it comes to politics, I think it's easy for us to become kind of all about me, all about mine, all about my constituency, all about how a party or a candidate will benefit me. When you and I go into the voting booth, we don't go in first and foremost concerned about ourselves. What we have to do is we go in first and foremost as followers of Jesus, which means we're ready to love and vote for others even more than ourselves. And the bottom line is this is not just about voting. This is about living. It's about loving. Christ followers look to live and love every day just like Jesus did. So then when Tuesday, November 8th rolls around, we do the same thing on that day we've been doing every other day of the year. We choose to love. So this November, we're going to elect a brand new president, the most powerful elected position in the entire world. Some things are going to change, but some things will very much stay the same. If we have a president who is a visionary billionaire who comes from outside Washington to change things up, Jesus is still Lord and we're still Christ followers. If we have a, a, a president who is a hardworking secretary of state who breaks through the gender ceiling to become the first female president, Jesus is still Lord and we're still Christ followers. If we have a president who comes from a reality show and seems like a fake sometimes, and, and his outer dialogue is at best offensive and at worst racist, understand Jesus is still Lord and we are still Christ followers. Or if we have a next president who's a Washington insider who seems conniving, is, is facing multiple indictments, Jesus is still Lord and we are still Christ followers. Understand this, at the end of this all, Jesus is still Lord and we're still Christ followers. So for Decision 2016, choose Jesus. And when you do, you choose to love God and you choose to love others.